Good. That's great. Glad to hear it. Uh, I'm Kenny White. I get to be the Shakopee campus pastor, and Matt and I get to uh, co-pastor, and one of the, my favorite things to do is to give Matt a hard time. So I want to uh, lovingly and in Christ's name enable you to give Matt a hard time. Uh, next week, uh, next month, rather, is Pastor Appreciation. Be creative. Uh, Give him a hard time and have fun doing it. it it'll be great. Uh, I, I have some thoughts. Feel free to email me and I, I can uh, let you in on that. Well, it is good to be here. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9 in just a few moments. And as you're turning there, uh, I, I, I've been thinking about a word. And this word might have, mm, it might conjure up different thoughts for different uh, people. Uh, the word is the word clear. Now, all of you probably have conjured up a thought about the word clear, but if you were in my family, you would have immediately done this. You would have put your elbows into your ribs, you would have kind of smiled, and you would have looked around. Because when we say clear at my house, it was a reminder that it's tickle time, but a specific type of tickle where we would come up behind each other and we'd go clear and we'd rub our knuckles together like this and then get up under the ribs, you know, and just kind of uh, tweak a little bit. Uh, my kids loved it. When it was one of the other kids, right? I have seven kids and so that's why I said when it would happen, they'd get a little nervous and look around and if I was headed towards another kid, they're like, yeah, yeah, go get him clear, dad. Uh, but to them, it's a little different. The term clear conjures up something in your mind. It certainly conjures up something in my family's mind. But specifically, when you hear the term clear, you may have a couple of thoughts. One of those thoughts is that things become clear. Obstacles are removed. You may think of that term clear and think of water and that you can see the bottom of a lake or an ocean or something and you go, oh, for that to happen, this water needs to be very clear. You might also think about it as you consider a horizon, and it is very clear. You can see forever. The clouds are gone. There are no obstacles in the way. It is clear. You, you may have that. You might also think, as I insinuated earlier, of some uh, heart attack situation where someone gets the defibrillators out and clear to bring someone back to life. That might also be a thought. So in both examples, I, I want you to consider, in the one, we see clearly there are no obstacles. In the other example, uh, life is brought. In other words, death is chased away. Life is brought into that moment. And I want to suggest to us today that God's word is going to do just that. It's going to remove some obstacles today. Uh, it, it's going to chase away death and, and bring life. And we're doing this all in the... Uh, all in the context of a phrase that we've been using called kingdom logic. Kingdom logic is very unique. Uh, we grew up in a world where the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life were kind of the go-to. Uh, it was the default setting for all of us. Of course, our flesh gets in the way, and we do things the way that we do things because we've been taught to do them that way because we've seen them done that way. And the context that we live in promotes a lifestyle of the flesh. But kingdom logic suggests something different. In fact, something dynamically different, something that would clear any obstacles and bring life in a place where there could be death. But it's not intuitive. It's not intuitive. 
We're going to be in Mark chapter 9 together. We're going to start in verse 30 in just a few moments. And as we do, we're going to see some things about kingdom logic. We're going to see that kingdom logic, uh, first of all, it communicates. Think clear, okay? C-L-E-A-R. It communicates, it leads, it emphasizes, it admonishes, and it retains. And we're going to see how kingdom logic does that as we walk together, bringing both clarity, removal of obstacles, and clear the, the uh, chasing away of death and the bringing of life. Let's watch and see how that manifests as we walk through this passage together. By the way, if you need a Bible, I want to encourage you to raise your hand and one of our team members will bring you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, let that be our gift to you. If you say, actually, I have a Bible, but my neighbor doesn't and I want to give it to my neighbor. Cool. Take it to your neighbor. If you're saying, I have a Bible, I just didn't bring it today, and I don't know if my neighbor does or not. Would you give our Bible back at the end? We'd appreciate that. All right. We're in verse 30. Verse 30, as we consider kingdom logic and this idea of it being clear, the removal of obstacles and the bringing of life where there is death, watch and see what Jesus does. By the way, in chapter 9, this series started with the transfiguration, this amazing situation where, uh, uh, where Elijah and Moses show up on the mountain and three of Jesus' disciples uniquely see this event. It was different than what they were used to. And both things became clear, the removal of obstacles, and also life was brought in that situation. Then uh, we went on from there, and this week, or this past week rather, there was uh, the healing of a boy with an unclean spirit. Do you remember that story? The, the story of the boy with the unclean spirit and the dad went to the disciples and they couldn't do it. And Jesus says, ah, this only happens uh, with prayer. And Jesus casts out that demon. But before that happens, the father, he says, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Uh, what a great reminder as we jump into this passage. From there, Jesus and his disciples are moving on, starting in verse 30. Are you ready, set? Here we go. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. So uh, Jesus is setting them up. He's, he's kind of going a, a secret way. He's not announcing it uh, because he wants to have a special time of teaching to his disciples. Let's see about that. Verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Uh, let me just pause there for a second to get us all on the same page. The term son of man was used uh, a few different ways. Ezekiel use it, uses it referring to that prophetic gift, that kind of mediator person who on the one side is speaking with God and on the other side is speaking those words to people. So there's that, that side of it, but it is primarily used in the first century in the context of Daniel. Daniel uses the term son of man to refer to the coming Messiah. This is a phrase that is common in the first century or what we would refer to as Second Temple Judaism. The son of man is the Messiah. This is who they've been waiting for. This is the one who is going to show up and his kingdom is going to have no end. This is the one who is going to rule over everyone. He's going to bring peace. And Jesus teaches about this. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Can, can you just imagine that for a second? 
Here the disciples are, and they're thinking, okay, here, the, the Son of Man, Jesus is teaching about the Messiah. And when the Messiah gets here, what's going to happen? I know what's going to happen. He's going to chase away those old bad Romans. He's going to get rid of the Romans. Uh, Israel is going to be the nation that is going to be in charge of the world, and we're going to have the King of kings and Lord of lords. Our Messiah is going to reign forever. This is great. And Jesus says, oh, yeah, and he's going to die. What? Uh, that doesn't seem to match up with what we understand Scripture to be teaching. Then he says, and he's going to raise from the dead. Oh, they've seen some people raised from the dead, but not stay raised. This is kind of different. They didn't understand it. And yet Jesus taught it. Do you think Jesus is surprised that they didn't get it? Of course he's not surprised. He knows. But he also knows that the word of God does not return void. He also knows just like David knew that when you hide the word of God in your heart, that you won't sin against God and that there is going to be a ripening, a fruit that comes from hiding God's word in his heart. And Jesus teaches his disciples that. Kingdom logic communicates Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection into our hearts, even when understanding is challenging. Jesus didn't go, mm, they're not going to get it. I'm not going to tell them about my death, uh, my suffering, my death, and my resurrection, I'm not going to talk to them about that. They're not going to get it. But rather, recognizing that they're not going to get it at this time, it's going to come back. He speaks truth to them. And a specific type of truth, that there's going to be suffering. The Son of Man, the Messiah, the one that we've been anticipating, God in the flesh, that one, he is going to come and he's going to suffer. And he's going to die. And he's going to raise from the, the grave. And this is unique and different than the world around them. Imagine the emperor as an example. Imagine the emperor saying this, the emperor of the Roman Empire going, as emperor, I am going to give up everything I have. Indeed, I'm going to give my life that you could have life and all of my riches are your riches that you could have a better life. Like, that sounds ridiculous, especially if you've done any studying of the Roman Empire, emperors. Uh, they, they were selfish, they were self-centered, uh, egotistical, and that is dynamically different than what Jesus offers. Additionally, Jesus communicates in a way that knowing they're not going to get it, he speaks truth. Let me speak especially to the parents and grandparents in the room for a moment. You may be in a place where you have been communicating this faith that you have received. This Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, who conquered sin and death, who rose from the grave, who gives life to anybody who would call on him. You, you, may, you may have been communicating that Jesus to your kids or grandkids, and they're not getting it. Let me just say, keep it up. Keep sharing. Keep speaking. Keep telling the stories. Keep speaking that truth. Suffering happened with Jesus. Death happened with Jesus. It was actual, it was physical, it was historical, and resurrection is also actual, physical, and historical. He did rise from the grave. And though you, we may not see it in this moment, there may be a day where we get to see the faith of the generations behind us following the Lord. Regardless, we have a responsibility to preach it and to not fall back. Additionally, this message is difficult. God in the flesh who would suffer. Well, as you know, Jesus calls us to follow him. 
And following him sometimes might mean just that. We're, we might have to suffer for our faith. We may have to give up. We might have to sacrifice things. It may even cost our lives in some context. Uh, that can very well happen. And, and in fact, if we read First Peter, Second Peter, we, that will happen. There is going to be suffering. And we don't like to talk about that too much in the West, though, do we? Like, like even, even Friendship Church, we're love, live, and serve like Jesus, not love, live, and suffer like Jesus. We don't talk about that too much. But it's a reality. And following Jesus sometimes means that we're going to suffer, we're going to sacrifice. And yet, in that place of sacrifice where, where we would think that's death, it actually produces life. Because in, in, in that place, in this kingdom logic, Jesus removes obstacles. And in the place of death, he brings life. And you and I get to experience that as we follow him. Let's keep going. Starting in verse, or continuing in verse 33. Uh, and we'll go through 37. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, the disciples, what were you discussing on the way? Like, after looking at what just happened, you kind of think maybe they're going to say, well, you know, you talked about suffering and dying and resurrecting. I don't really understand that. But this is what they say. Uh, but they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. <laughs> God in the flesh, willing to give his life, and their discussion is, who do you think out of us is the best? <laughs> you might be missing something, boys. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. The word servant there is where we get the word deacon. Uh, there, there is a service that happens with leaders in this kingdom logic that doesn't happen in the world. No, in the world, we serve leaders. and in, in the kingdom of God, leaders serve. And that looks dynamically different. Uh, let's go ahead and look at verses 36 and 37. We'll come back to that idea in just a moment. He took a child and put in the midst of them. Okay, so keep in mind, these are adults. Uh, children are, are kind of seen but not heard. Children are, uh, they have no title. They have no real authority. They're the ones who, hey, could you get something to drink? And the child would go get the drink. Hey, we can't find the remote control. Would you get, that probably didn't happen in the first century, but you get the idea. He took the child and put, it in, put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. As an act of faith, we receive even the least of these as a, a, a leader in this kingdom logic. There is something about serving that puts puts value in the kingdom that is different than the world. Uh, I shared this in the first service, and I, I would share it here too, that um, I've, I've had the opportunity to oversee interns for years, and I really enjoy that. I really like seeing uh, from our interns the grit. I, I, I love seeing, sometimes they don't have the information, biblical information, but they want to serve and they want to care, and I've seen it too many times to, uh, to not believe this true. But one of my favorite things to do uh, with our interns is, I'll say, uh, the bathrooms are dirty. 
the cleaning supplies are in the closet. Would you just take care of that real quick and then walk away and see what happens? I love it. Well, because one, it's kingdom logic, but also it's just fun to do that, just so you know. (laughs) But what I love seeing are these interns starting to talk with each other and go, oh, wait a minute, Uh, we're going to need this. Wait, we're going to need that. Well, hey, I'll take care of this part. I'll I'll do the mirrors. You do the urinals. No, I don't. Uh, But they they just jump in and take care of it because they, they have a servant's heart. And I am a big believer that if you're not willing to clean a bathroom, and serve in ministry, then you probably shouldn't be in ministry because you're, you're going to clean up a lot of stuff that you didn't want to clean up or think you should be cleaning up. It's going to be a part of life. You're going to be in uncomfortable positions. And to see, uh, to see people coming in, I want to go into ministry. Okay, part of ministry is cleaning up bathrooms. Okay, I can do that. It's a beautiful thing to see that, that kind of click, that, that makes sense. One of the things I've gotten to do through the years is do customer service training. I love to do customer service training, especially in places where people have felt beat down for a while, like, oh, nobody cares about me, nobody thinks of me, and I like to give them the secret, and the secret is this. Hey, if, if you serve people, you, you're one of the greatest in here. You have the ability to make someone's day or to ruin someone's day. Let's just use it in terms of a restaurant. Maybe you've had this person who comes in and they're they're on top of things. They're not overly forward, but they're super kind. They get you the meal in time. They're gracious. They're sweet. And you kind of go, the food was okay. But man, I'll come back here for the service any day of the week. And you've also probably been in those places where the the food was really good, but the service was horrendous. Like I never want to go back to that. Why? Because there is unique power in those who serve. They have the ability to do something, and I think that's a kingdom ability that is uniquely given by God. And even when non-Christians are doing it, there is this amazing ability to bring life and to give clarity in ways that uh, it doesn't. So what happens when Christians lean into that? When Christians choose humility and servanthood? Because kingdom logic leads us to that. Kingdom logic leads us to that very issue. Let's keep going. Verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. I, I just think that's so funny. Like, okay, Jesus has just taught about leadership. Uh, he's taught about serving. He's brought a little kid in there. And their response is, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Like, oh, let's not talk about that anymore. That made me uncomfortable. Uh, let's get to the meat of ministry. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Jesus recognizes uh, something about what is going on. They're wanting to divide and Jesus is looking to unify. Uh, Watch how this comes across. Let's continue to look in verses 40 and 41. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Well, we we see some things in this. Specifically that 
uh, we are called into this unity. Jesus, kingdom logic emphasizes the importance of unity in our shared mission. Unity in our shared mission. Uh, we, we can't miss this. We are really good at dividing. All, all of us are. I, I remember in college I heard this story, and it was about this, this Christian who went into the restaurant. He went into the restaurant, and he saw this guy sitting at the restaurant, and he, uh, uh, he was reading his Bible. And he goes, oh, I see you're reading your Bible. He said, yeah, I'm a Christian. He goes, that's cool. I'm a Christian too. He said, that's excellent. And he said, uh, not only am I a Christian, but, but I went to Bible college. He said, no kidding, I went to Bible college. Which Bible college did you go to? He said, well, I went to Crown College. I went to Crown, so that's why I'm picking on him right now. Uh, uh, I, I went to Crown College. Oh, that, that's great. I went to Crown College too. He said, uh, you know, did, did you have uh, Dr. Giannoulis for Greek? Yes, I had Dr. Giannoulis for Greek. Well, that's amazing. Hey, I'm just wondering, though, what Bible are you using? And the guy goes, uh, I'm, I'm using the NIV. And the, the guy who walked in says, I only use the King James, you heretic. And the idea is that we divide. Someone went, <gasps> we divide. Don't, like, so minuscule. What Bible are you reading? Like, that's where we want to divide at. But we do it by default very easily. And Jesus is calling us to unity, but in him. Jesus is calling us to unity in him. Let's continue on before I get in more trouble. 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus identifies the innocence of children. It's one of the biggest concerns that I have in our culture right now is that uh, as, a, as a church, it's important for us to preserve the innocence of children. Jesus seems to have a high value on that very issue of uh, retaining, of keeping, of protecting the innocent. And children are certainly that. They say and do things that make you laugh, and they don't mean anything bad by it. Sweet. But in a culture that doesn't value that innocence, who would drive kids into a different direction, we need to be cautious. We need to be wise. And we see this. Jesus warns us on this very issue. Uh, continuing on. Jesus says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame with two feet to be thrown into, than with two feet to be thrown into hell. In verse 47 uh, and 48. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So let, let, let me explain. Jesus is not saying literally to cut off your hand, to cut off your foot, to gouge out your eyes. That's not what he's saying. But he is going to great lengths to say, hey, wait a minute. There is an innocence that we see with children. And we don't want to be a stumbling block to anybody. 
We need to be willing to give up something that is very valuable to us. As valuable as the right hand is, as valuable as your leg is, as valuable as your eye is, we need to be willing to give up our rights that others could have life and, uh, and to be on mission together. Well, we, we live in a society that it's kind of like, this is my right. I can do what I want to do. I have freedom to do it. And when we look in Scripture, we also see we have a great deal of freedom. But Jesus warns against that. If we're causing somebody to stumble, what do we do? Well, we learn that in this kingdom logic, it emphasizes not just the importance of unity, but it also admonishes us to avoid causing others to sin and to take radical measures to prevent it. What are some radical measures that we need to take? Maybe not so radical. Are there things that we allow in our home that we shouldn't? Are there discussions that we are or we're not having that we should or shouldn't? What does that look like specifically? Uh, allow the Spirit of God to speak to your heart on this matter because it seems to be a big deal to Jesus. And in a world that tells us we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, with whomever we want, Jesus has a different uh, statement. His kingdom looks a lot different. Let's go ahead and move into verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Now, uh, Jesus is talking about this in a culture that has a high value of salt, right? Like, salt is super helpful. One, it, it helps things taste good. That's true. But also, it preserves. So, it's, it, it preserves meat. Um, they needed that. And Jesus is saying, for everyone will be salted with, they'll be preserved with fire. This fire is, this, uh, is representative of a judgment. Like we're all going to go through some judgments in our life. Situations that occur, they're going to be intense and difficult times. There may be situations in our lives that are, are uncomfortable, that cause suffering. And then what? And then what? He goes on to say, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, if, if it doesn't preserve anymore... How will you make it salty again? It doesn't preserve. How can you make it preserve if it doesn't preserve? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. This preservation of walking in Christ, of avoiding, this, uh, of avoiding sin at great cost, but also remembering what it is that preserves us. Let me make some suggestions here. First of all, kingdom logic retains the saltiness of our faith, preserving our distinctiveness and calls us to be at peace with one another. So uh, let's talk that out a little bit. Retains the saltiness of our faith. What, well, what does that mean? Well, there, there is something about the gospel of Jesus Christ that has staying power. Uh, if you have pen and paper, I want you to take it out and I, wanna, I want you to write something down for yourself. We're going to be talking about this in the weeks to come. It's called the 28-Day Gospel Challenge. The 28-Day Gospel Challenge. I want it on your radar. We're going to start a series in a few weeks called uh, The Holy Spirit, or based on the Holy Spirit. And in that series, we're going to begin with a 28-Day Gospel Challenge, where we familiarize ourselves with the gospel, getting very comfortable with it, and communicating it to others. I am a big believer 
that we should absolutely share the gospel with people who don't hear it. Additionally, we should share the gospel with people who know it. In other words, we're having these conversations regularly uh, about Jesus, that, uh, that we're sinners, we need a Savior, and we're not the Savior, that, uh, that God came in the flesh, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he conquered sin and death, that he rose from the grave, and he gives life to anybody who would call on him repenting of sin and calling on him. I believe that. And we have to season our conversations with that. It's a part of this preservation. In fact, as in Colossians 4, 5, and 6, uh, says it this way, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I, in this 28-day gospel challenge, uh, there will be opportunities to learn a formula. You should learn a formula. It'll be very helpful in understanding the gospel and speaking it. Additionally, because it's a part of our life, because Jesus is who we love, it should be very easy for us to have these conversations with one another and with people from outside of our uh, group, that we're able to share the gospel, that we're able to talk about Jesus in a way that's not, it's not mean, it's not offensive, it's not defensive, it's just fact and love, it's truth and love, and we see that. Kingdom logic helps us, uh, retains the saltiness of our faith. Though we're different, Jesus is the focus. And it calls us to be at peace with one another. A shalom peace. We're good. We're in a good place. So how do we get there? That's a great question. Let's look at some action steps. I love action steps. They, they help me to make sometimes some, uh, some principles that are... Um, not concrete, concrete. You know, something that is abstract makes it concrete. And I, I appreciate that. I, I hope these are helpful as we look at these action steps together. Again, recognizing that this kingdom logic removes obstacles and brings life. First thing I want to encourage you with in a daily action step is to engage in Bible reading and prayer. Some of you are morning people. God bless you. I'm so glad. That's wonderful. My wife, she's a morning person. She likes to throw open the curtains, and she will even say, oh, it's a new day. And I'm like, ah, you know, the sun, no. Uh, not a morning person. She is. That's great. You may be. Good for you. Get up early and read the scriptures. What a great time for you to engage and not open curtains. Okay. <laughs> I said that out loud. Sorry. Sorry, Cindy. Uh, okay. Some of you are night people. That's great. Take time at night. Read the scriptures. Spend time in prayer. Seek a place to serve. Oftentimes, I'll hear people say this, I'm not getting fed. And though I think that in worship services, you should get fed, I, I hope that that is true. Also, I recognize you're not going to get fed if you don't serve. Like, it just doesn't work that way. Uh, you, you might get spiritually fat, but you're not going to get fed. There's this working out, the spiritual exercise that has to occur, and serving is a part of that. 
You may be serving in your community. You may be serving in a variety of ways in your home. I want to encourage you to find a, a way to serve within your community of faith. Uh, where might that be? What might that look like? Next, join or start a life group. What a great place to engage in fellowship and in a life group. A small group of people who are focused on word, prayer, and care. Those are kind of the three tenets of a life group. We have a lot of new people coming to Friendship on both campuses. It's been super exciting. One of the main things that are asked almost immediately is, how do I get involved in a small group? How can I connect with people? A life group is a place that, that, that happens, but we need more life groups to make that happen. Because asking a new person to connect in a group that's been going on for a decade, it's a little tricky. So starting new life groups are very important. Would encourage you to consider that if you haven't. Additionally, challenge yourself to daily share the gospel. Let's try it for one week. We're going to have a gospel challenge soon, and we'll talk more about that, but at least engage for one week. See what happens over the next seven days as you engage in sharing the gospel, maybe sharing with people in your own home, maybe with people who already know the gospel. That's great. They might go, hey, you missed a step. Uh, oh, what step is that? You're a sinner. I don't know. I'm just I'm saying. Hang in there with me. What is it? Uh, uh, who is it that you can share the gospel with? Five, seek relationships where regular confession of sin occurs and genuine repentance from sin happens. I have a friend, we've been friends for nearly 30 years now. Uh, we have not always lived in the same places, but we regularly connect. And this is a part of our regular rhythm. How are you doing in your walk with the Lord? Man, it's not been good. And we both have given excuses over the years, as you can imagine. And we call each other on it. And that sounds like an excuse. It sounds like you're justifying that. You're right. We've submitted to one another in these ways. We have this regular discussion and confession, and it just sounds like this. You know what? In this way, I, I didn't follow the Lord, and, and I sinned against God. That's confession. We're saying what God already knows to be true. And then repenting, turning to the cross, turning to Jesus and following him in those places, taking that step of faith. Seek relationships where regular confession of sin occurs and genuine repentance from sin happens. Uh, I, I think it's important for me to make this statement. A few years ago, I was meeting with a Supreme Court justice in the state of Wyoming. He's a Wyoming Supreme Court uh, justice. Great guy. Loves the Lord. Is also um, a very deep thinker, systematic thinker. And one of the things he said in our meeting together, he goes, you know, Kenny, I would say that the great problem that Christian, that Christian men have is the lack of real friends. And I said, what do you mean? And this is what he brought up. Real friends where men can meet with men and talk about some things uh, like sin and repenting of sin and calling on the Lord. I've appreciated uh, Stacey Johnson and Brad Kaisersot for uh, their ministry with the men here at the church, and, and that really is the heart of it. Guys, find those kind of relationships. Ladies, find those kind of relationships. It may be easier for you. It may not be, but it may be easier for you to find those, but let's find those relationships. The worship team is going to come, and as they 
come forward, I, I want to transition our hearts to communion. Communion is for the believer. Those who have received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Communion additionally is for the believer to pause before the Lord. 1 Corinthians tells us to examine our hearts before we enter into a time of communion. Is there any unconfessed sin? If there is, that we should confess it. And maybe even as we're talking this morning, as we're engaging in the Word, there's some kingdom logic that has been absent in our lives. And if that's the case, let me encourage confession and repentance.